Act One of Don Juan, or The Feast with the Statue, by Moliere, translated by Henri van Laun. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Dramatis Personae Don Juan, son to Don Louis, read by Kurt Papke. Don Carlos, brother to Donna Elvira, read by Alan Mapstone. Don Alonso, brother to Donna Elvira, read by Adam Bielka. Don Luis, father to Don Juan, read by Ron Altman. The Statue of the Commander, read by Todd. Guzman, Gentleman Usher to Dona Elvira, read by Larry Wilson. Monsieur de Manche, a tradesman, read by Thomas Peter. Scanorel, servant to Don Juan, read by Adrian Stevens. La Violette, servant to Don Juan, read by Avahi. Ragatin, servant to Don Juan, read by Alan Mapstone. Pierrot, a Countryman, read by Thomas Peter. La Rami, a Swashbuckler, read by Todd. A Poor Man, read by Jim Locke. A Ghost, read by Sandra Schmidt. Donna Elvira, wife to Don Juan, read by Matea Bracic. Charlotte, Countrywoman, read by Jen Broda. Maturin, Countrywoman, read by Sonia. Stage Directions, read by Emmy Kranz. Act One. Scene One, a palace. Scanarel, Guzman. Scanarel, with a snuff-box in his hand. Whatever Aristotle and all the philosophers may say, nothing can be compared to tobacco. All respectable men are very fond of it. And he who lives without tobacco deserves not to live. It not only enlivens and clears a man's brains, but it also teaches men to be virtuous. Through it one learns to become a respectable man. Do you not see plainly, as soon as we take it, how affable we become with everyone, and how delighted we are to give right and left, wherever we are. We do not even wait till it is asked for, but we forestall people's wishes. So true it is that tobacco inspires all those who take it with sentiments of honour and virtue. <laughs> but enough of this. Let us rather resume our discourse. So then, dear Guzman, Donna Elvira, your mistress, being surprised at our departure, is come after us. My master has touched her heart so intensely that you say she cannot exist without coming here in search of him. Between ourselves, do you wish me to tell you my thoughts? I'm afraid our love will be ill repaid, that a journey to this city will produce little fruit, and that you would have gained just as much had you never stirred from the spot. And pray, Sagananarelli, what can inspire you with a terror which so augurs ill? Has your master opened his heart to you on that subject? And did he tell you that his coldness for us obliged him to leave? Not at all, but, by what I see, I know pretty well how things are, and although he has not yet said anything to me, 
I could almost lay a wager that the business is tending that way. I may perhaps be mistaken, but yet, in such cases, experience has given me some insight. What? Can this sudden departure be caused by the faithlessness of Don Juan? Could he insult so greatly the chaste love of Dona Evara? No, no, he is young yet, and has not the courage to— Can a man of his rank commit so base an action? Oh, yes, his rank. The idea is really admirable. He would forbear on that account. But he is restrained by the holy bonds of matrimony. Ah, poor Guzman, my good friend, believe me, you do not know yet what sort of man Don Juan is. Ah, truly, I do not know what sort of man he may be if he has acted so treacherously towards us. I do not understand how, after so much love and impatience shown, such homage urged upon us, such vows, sighs, and tears, so many passionate letters, such ardent protestations and repeated oaths, such transports in short, and such outbursts forcing even in his passion the sacred obstacle of a nunnery, in order to get Dona Elvira in his power. I do not understand, I say, how, after all this, he should have the heart to break his word. I have no great difficulty in understanding this, and if you knew the fellow, you would think the thing easy enough for him. I do not say that he has changed his sentiments for Donna Elvira. I am not yet quite sure of it. You know that he has ordered me to set out before him, and since his arrival he has not spoken to me. But, by way of precaution, I tell you, between ourselves, that John Yuan, my master, is one of the greatest scoundrels upon earth. A madman, a dog, a demon, a Turk, a heretic, who believes neither in heaven, nor hell, nor devil, who passes his life like a regular brute beast, one of Epicurus's swine, a true Sardinopolis, who shuts his ears against all Christian remonstrances that can be made to him, and considers all that we believe as so much nonsense. You tell me that he has married your mistress. Believe me, he would have done more to satisfy his passion, and would, beside herself, have married you, her dog, and her cat into the bargain. It costs him nothing to contract a marriage. He uses no other snares to entrap the fair sex, and he marries whomsoever he can get hold of. A lady, gentlewoman, citizen's daughter, countrywoman, he thinks nothing too hot nor too cold for him, and if I were to tell you the names of all of those whom he has married in different places, I would not have finished until night. You seem surprised, and change colour at what you hear. This is a mere outline of the man, and many other touches would be required to finish the picture. Let it be sufficient that some day or other, heaven must needs overwhelm him with its wrath, that I had much better be with the devil than with him that he makes me witness so many horrors that I could wish him already. I do not know where. If a great lord is a wicked man, it is a terrible thing. I must be faithful to him in spite of myself. Fear moves me instead of zeal, curbs my sentiments, and often compels me to applaud what I detest from my very soul. See, there he comes to take a walk in this palace. Let us separate. One word more, I have trusted you and not concealed anything from you. It came a little too quickly out of my mouth, but if ever anything should reach his ears, I shall declare flatly that you have told a lie. Scene 2. Don Juan. Scanarel. What man was just now talking to you? 
He has very much the air, it seems to me, of Honest Gutsman, a servant of Donna Elvira. It is something very like it. What? It is he? The very man. And how long has he been in town? Since last night. And why has he come? I believe you may imagine well enough what disturbs him. Our departure, no doubt? The good man is quite offended and asked me the cause of it. And what answer did you give him? That you had not told me anything about it. But, prithee, what do you think of it? What do you imagine about this affair? I... I believe without wronging you that you have some new love affair in your head. Do you think so? Yes. Upon my word, you are not mistaken. And I must confess another object has driven Elvira from my thoughts. Oh, good heavens, I know my Don Juan at my fingers' ends, and that your heart is the most restless in the world. It delights to row from one set of chains to another, and never likes to stay in one spot. And tell me, do you not think I am right in acting in such a manner? Oh, sir! What? Speak! Certainly, you are right, if you have a mind to it. No one can say anything against it. But if you had not a mind to it, it might perhaps be another affair. Well, then, I give you leave to speak and to tell me your sentiments. In that case, sir, I must frankly tell you that I do not approve of your goings-on, and that I think it very wicked to make love to everyone, as you do. What? Would you have a man bind himself to remain with the first object which has caught him, renounce the world for her sake, and have no more eyes for anybody? A nice thing to pique oneself upon the false honor of being faithful, to bury oneself forever in one passion, and to be dead from our very youth to all other beauties that may strike us. No, no, constancy is fit only for fools. Every handsome woman has a right to charm us, and the advantage of being first met with ought not to rob others of the just pretensions which they all have upon our hearts. As for me, beauty delights me wherever I meet with it, and I easily give myself up to that sweet violence with which it hurries us along. It does not matter if I am engaged. The love I feel for one fair does not induce me to do injustice to others. I have eyes to see the merit of all and pay to every one the homage and tribute which nature demands from us. However it be, I cannot refuse my heart to any lovely creature I behold. And as soon as a handsome face asks it of me, if I had ten thousand hearts, I would give them all. Budding inclinations, after all, have a charm which is indescribable, and all the pleasure of love is in variety. One takes great delight in reducing by a hundred contrivances the heart of a young beauty, in seeing every day the gradual progress one has made in combating with transports, tears, and sighs the innocent bashfulness of a mind which can hardly prevail upon itself to surrender, in demolishing inch by inch all the little resistance she can oppose to us, 
in conquering the scruples upon which she prides herself, and in leading her gently whither we have a mind to bring her. But when we are once her master, there is nothing more to say, nothing more to wish for. All the charms of the passion are over, and we are lulled asleep in the tranquility of such a love. If some new object does not awaken our desires and present to our heart the attractive charms of a conquest still to make. In short, there is nothing so pleasant as to triumph over the resistance of a fair maiden. I possess in such a case the ambition of a conqueror who flies perpetually from one victory to another, and can never resolve to set bounds to his wishes. Nothing can restrain the impetuosity of my desires. I feel I have a heart that could love all the world, and like Alexander I could wish for other worlds wherein to extend my amorous conquests. Odds bodkins, how you talk! It seems that you have learned this by art. You speak like a book. What have you to say to this? Upon my word, I have to say, uh, I do not know what to say, for you turn things in such a manner that it seems you are right, and yet it is certain that you are not. I had the finest thoughts in the world, but your speech has put them all out of my head. Let me alone. Another time I shall write down all my arguments to dispute with you. Do so. But, sir, would it be included in the permission you have given me if I were to tell you that I am somewhat scandalised at the life which you lead? How? What life do I lead? A very good one. But, for example, to see you marry every month as you do? Can there be anything more agreeable? True. I should think it very agreeable and very amusing, and I should myself like it well enough if there were no arm in it. But, sir, to make thus a jest of a sacred mystery, and... Well, be it so. It is an affair between heaven and me, and I can very well settle it without your troubling yourself about it. Upon my word, sir, I have always heard it said that to jest about heaven is wicked jesting, and that libertines always come to a bad end. Hello, master fool. You know I told you that I do not like persons who remonstrate. Therefore, I do not speak to you. Heaven forbid. You know what you do. And if you are a libertine, you have your reasons. But there are certain puny coxcombs in this world who are so without knowing why or wherefore, who pretends to be free thinkers because they think it becomes them. Had I a master of that kind, I would tell him plainly to his face, Dare you thus jest with heaven, and do you not tremble to laugh as you do at things the most sacred? Does it become you, you little earthworm, you mannequin that you are? I speak to the master I mentioned. Does it become you to wish to turn into ridicule what all men revere? Do you think that because you are a man of rank, because you wear a fair and well-curled wig, and have some feathers in your hat, a gold-laced coat and flame-coloured ribbons, I do not speak to you, but to the other. Do you think I say that you are a cleverer man for all this, that you may be allowed to do everything, and that no one should dare to tell you the truth? Learn from me, who am your servant, that heaven, sooner or later, punishes the impious, that a wicked life leads to a wicked death, that libertines never come to a good end, and that... Silence! Why, what is the matter? 
The matter is that I inform you that a certain beauty has got possession of my heart, and that, captivated by her charms, I followed her to this city. And have you no fear, sir, of the consequences of the death of that commander who you killed six months ago? Why should I be afraid? Did I not kill him honorably? Very honorably. It could not have been done more so, and he would be wrong to complain. I have my pardon for this affair. Yes, but this pardon does not perhaps stifle the resentment of relatives and friends and... Pooh! Let us not think of any harm that may happen to us, but only of what can give us pleasure. The person of whom I speak to you is a young bride, one of the prettiest in the world, who was brought hither by the very man she is to marry. Chance threw this pair of lovers in my way three or four days before they set out on their journey. Never did I see two people so satisfied with each other and displaying so much love. The visible tenderness of their mutual flame moved me. I felt it deeply, and my love began by jealousy. Yes, I could not at first sight endure to see them so happy together. Resentment kindled my desire, and I thought it would cause me very great pleasure to disturb their intimacy, and to sever that union by which the delicate feelings of my heart were offended. But hitherto all my efforts have been in vain, and I have recourse to the final stratagem. This intended spouse is today to treat the object of his love with a sail. Without having said anything to you, all things are prepared for gratifying my passion. I have freighted a little vessel, and engaged men with whose assistance I can easily carry off the fare. Ah, sir. What? You've done quite right, and you take things in the proper way. There is nothing in the world like satisfying all one's desires. Get ready to come along with me, and take care you yourself to bring all my arms, so that... He sees Dona Elvira. Oh, most unlucky meeting! Traitor! You did not tell me she was here herself. Sir, you do not so much as ask me. Is she mad not to have changed her dress, and to come here in her riding habit? Scene 3. Dona Elvira, Don Juan, Scannerelle. Will you do me the favour, Don Juan, to notice me? And may I at least hope that you will deign to turn your eyes this way? I confess to you, madam, that I am surprised, and that I did not expect you here. Yes, I see plainly that you did not expect me here, and you are indeed surprised, but quite otherwise than I hoped for. The manner in which you appear convinces me fully of what I refuse to believe. I am astonished at my simplicity, and at the weakness of my heart in doubting a treachery so strongly confirmed by appearances. I was simple-minded enough, I confess it, or rather foolish enough, to be willing to deceive myself, and to take pains to contradict my eyes and my judgment. I sought for reasons to excuse to my affection that diminution of friendship which it discovered in you and I purposely invented a hundred legitimate excuses for so hurried a departure, to clear you from the crime of which my reason accused you. All that my just suspicions could daily say to me was in vain. 
I would not listen to their voice, which represented you to me as a criminal. I took a pleasure in giving ear to a thousand ridiculous fancies, which depicted you to my heart as innocent. But, at last, your reception permits me no longer to doubt, and the glance with which you received me informs me of many more things than I would wish to know. I shall be glad, nevertheless, to hear from your own mouth the reasons for your departure. Pray speak, Don Juan. Let us hear in what way you can justify yourself. Madam, there is Sganarel, who knows why I went away. Sganarel, whispering to Don Juan. I, sir, by your leave, I know nothing of the matter. Well, Sganarelli, speak. It does not matter from whose mouth I hear his reasons. Don Juan, making signs to Sganarel to draw near him. Come, speak then to the lady. What would you have me say? Come hither, since he will have it so, and tell me the causes of so sudden a departure. Why do you not answer? I have nothing to answer. You make fun of your very humble servant. Will you answer, I say? Madam? What? Sir? Don Juan, threatening him. If? Madam, the conqueror Alexander and the other worlds are the cause of our departure. That, sir, is all I can say. Will you be pleased, Don Juan, to explain to me these beautiful mysteries? Madam, to say the truth... Fie! How badly you defend yourself for a courtier who should be accustomed to these sort of things. I pity you to see you so confused. Why do you not arm your brow with a noble impudence? Why do you not swear that you entertain still the same feelings for me? That you always love me with an unparalleled affection, and that nothing but death can sever you from me? Why do you not tell me that affairs of the greatest consequence compelled you to set out without informing me of it? That, much against your will, you must stay here for some time? and that I need only return whence I came, with the assurance that you will follow me as soon as possible, that it is certain you are very anxious to rejoin me, and that, whilst you are absent from me, you endure the pangs of a body separated from the soul? That is the way to defend yourself, but not to stand thunderstruck as you do. I must confess, madam, that I possess not a talent for dissimulation, but am sincere at heart. I will not tell you that I entertain still the same feelings for you, and that I am very anxious to rejoin you, since it is certain that I came away only to avoid you, not for the reasons you imagine, but from a pure motive of conscience, and because I thought I could not live with you any longer without sin. I felt some scruples, madam and the eyes of my mind were open to what I was doing. I reflected that in order to marry you, I took you from the precincts of a convent, that you broke vows which engaged you elsewhere, and that heaven is very jealous of such things. I was seized with repentance and dreaded the wrath of heaven. I thought our marriage was only adultery in disguise, that it would bring down upon us some calamity, and that, in short, I ought to endeavor to forget you and to give you an opportunity of returning to your former obligations. 
Would you oppose so holy a design, madam, and would you have me expose myself to the vengeance of heaven by retaining you, that by— Ah, wicked wretch! Now I know you thoroughly, and to my misfortune I know you when it is too late, and when such a knowledge can only serve to make me despair. But be assured that your crime will not remain unpunished, and that the same heaven which you mock will revenge your perfidy. Scannerel heaven! Oh, yes, we care much for that. Madam! It is enough. I do not wish to hear anything more. I even blame myself for having already heard too much. It is meanness to have our shame explained too clearly, and in such cases a noble heart should, at the very first word, resolve what to do. Do not expect me to break out into reproaches and opprobious language. No, no. My wrath does not spend itself in vain words. It reserves all its ardour for vengeance. I tell you once more, heaven will punish you, wretch, for the wrong you have done me. And if you have nothing to fear from heaven, fear at least the anger of an injured woman. Scene 4. Don Juan, Scannerel. Scannerel, aside. If he should ever feel some remorse... Don Juan, after some pause. Let us go and think of the execution of our amorous enterprise. Scannerel, alone. Oh, what an abominable master I'm forced to serve. End of Act One